Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. On this episode, we are excited to talk with two end-of-life doulas, Jennifer Malms and Sarah Muxlow from British Columbia. They are the co-founders of the End-of-Life Doula Association of Canada, and we talk about their journeys to become end-of-life doulas, what they do, and why it might be something you'll want to look into in your community. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah and Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Welcome. So for our audience, can you, one of you explain what is an end-of-life doula? Absolutely. So an end-of-life doula is really just a professional who is educated with the knowledge of the dying and death and grief experience. So doulas have this opportunity to provide personalized support and care, education and resources for individuals and their families so that they're able to make informed decisions and access resources and support and to be able to plan ahead and prepare for any type of critical illness or end of life. Sounds familiar to our mission. (laughs) I feel like every time I speak to a death doula or learn more about the role of a death doula, I always feel like it's the missing link (laughs) in, in a way, to be honest with you. It's, it's funny because Sarah and I were just chatting about this before we came on. We were talking about our definition of a doula and your mission statement and how both for us were very aligned, but also your, um, your birth story or, you know, how come you started the waiting room was really uh, similar to why Sarah and I started the End of Life Doula Association Um, back six years ago, we met for coffee, we talked about our frustrations in the current healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sarah was a social work student, and I had uh, done some nursing, dropped out of nursing school because of not being able to fit in, in that structure, Mm -hmm. and went on to, to do um, education in uh, end of life care and gerontology. Um, but very similar because we were we, we were just discussing this. It's just so similar and our paths are, are so uh, aligned. How did you both get onto the path individually to choose to learn about being a doula and become death doulas as your full-time jobs, really? Like most of us, personal experience. So supporting my grandmother through her aging and end of life experience. And we had a high level of family involvement and financial privilege. And we still experienced so many hurdles and hiccups. And I just thought to myself, oh my word, we have such a high level of privilege and we're struggling and this could have been better. And I wish I knew that. Okay, no, this needs to change. We can do better. So really it was just that foundation of no, we can do better. And, and then thinking, what about all the people who don't have family support? What about people who don't have families nearby or people who, are, who just don't have families around? So exactly what, we're all the same mission, just being able to say, hey, you know what, what about everybody? We're not just thinking about those who do have access to palliative care, et cetera. This is a larger shift, a larger initiative. So I'm very thankful for your tireless work 
So my experience wasn't a personal experience. My experience was a professional experience. So I, I love that we, we both had different experiences, but it ended us being on the same path. And I was in my first year of nursing school and um, we were going to our first practicum. It was my first day on my first practicum. And we were all, you know, given our, our patient and said, you know, you need to go in and do a bed bath. And it was in a long-term care home. I walk into this room, my brand new scrubs, I'm like ready to go. I'm so eager. And I look at this lady and I think there is no way I am going to be able to provide that kind of care for this person at this time. Um, I, I remember, I, I still see it. I approached the bed. I gently brushed her cheek and I said, good morning. Would you like me to help you wash up today? And she opened her eyes and she said, oh, love, could you brush my hair? And I said, oh, wonderful. This is a way I'm going to connect without, you know, stripping her off and, and starting this care when she doesn't even know me. Um, so I, she had a, a brush on her uh, night table and she had this like wiry gray white hair and it was down to her bum. So it was a lot, it was a big task. And I sat just sat on the edge of her bed. I wasn't, I was like, I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to sit on the edge of the bed and I'm brushing her hair and I'm brushing her hair. And uh, when I finished, I said, okay, I'm all done. And she said, thank you. And then she died. She died right there um, within, within the minute. And, mm -hmm. and simply, she just said, thank you. And she died. And that is the most profound That's end crazy. of life experience. But it made me so angry, Sammy. That was my tipping point. That was my turning point. Um, I thought, why are people dying here with me? Where's her family? Where, why didn't the nurses tell me this was going to happen or this could happen? Nobody had prepared me at all for that moment. Um, and I was angry for years. Like It, it, was, it was like, no, I'm just going to finish out these couple of years in nursing school. And then I'm getting the heck out of there. I am not doing this work. This was no good. And then I reframed it a few years, maybe, you know, getting older and wiser. And I thought, what a beautiful experience. What, a, a, you know, an honor that she would choose me in that moment. And I was probably helping her prepare. You know, she probably wanted her hair done, you know, when she was going on her journey, you know. Um, and I, I really did. Re rethink about it. I took all that anger and I put it into this passion to do better. Why do you call yourselves an end of life doula when your role spans so much earlier in the illness trajectory? Is it a barrier for you guys? You know, language is so important. And I value you asking this question because I would say, if anything, shifting the language from a death doula to an end of life doula is actually more encompassing because as we know, end of life can span over a long period of time. And it is such a journey that people really do require greater support for. So mm -hmm. I would say that um, we definitely advocate for that language around end of life doula instead of just death doula. Jennifer, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, a few things come to mind for me. Um, I'm also trained as a birth doula, and you're absolutely right, Sammy. Um, mm -hmm. And I did birth doula training what, long after I was working as an end-of-life doula. I wanted to see what the comparisons were. And they're so similar in how you show up to support someone. You're mm -hmm. absolutely right. A, an end-of-life doula or a birth doula doesn't just show up at the birth or at the death. 
Mm -hmm. I actually hardly ever get called in to vigil because I preload and pre um, educate the families to be able to care for their own person. Because if you're there to care for your own loved one, that's way more like your ripple effects that you say, um, way more important, way more valuable than me coming in and saving the day. Mm -hmm. Then Mm -hmm. the families are going to think, oh, good thing we had Jennifer. She was our rock and she came in and she saved the day. Instead of looking at themselves and what they've done Mm -hmm. to actually uh, improve the experience and be able to share that with others. Um, The word doula is actually Greek for servant. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's why we we chose that name, but because it's not like servant, like, you know, ba- bow down, but mm-hmm. it's a servant who serves the needs, how they need to be met. So meeting somebody where they're at, it really is about that because every experience is different. Every end of life is, you know, you, when you talk about customize your order, there's not one death or one family that I've supported that was like another. So they're so different. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Sarah, Sarah explains it very nicely. Okay. So first of all, I want to change the name to be a serious illness doula, because mm-hmm. again, I appreciate where it's gone from a death doula to an end of life doula, which is more encompassing, but it's still end of life could span, um, you know, five years. I mean, how do we define what end of life really is? Uh, Is it defined by the illness? Um, Is it defined by the functional status? Is it like, how do we define it? Is it defined by the last year of life? Most people don't put a quantifier on it. And therefore I worry like we do in palliative care, that people won't know when to enlist it. (laughs) When do we start palliative care? At what point do we enlist the end of life doula? Because most humans don't realize when they're in the end of life. It's a vague concept that people, most people fight it off anyway. So I feel like both of us end of life doulas and our, these are palliative care clinicians, um, have a marketing challenge. You know? Oh, oh, Sammy, I hear that so closely. Absolutely. All yeah. about our approach. And, and like you said, in regards to that timeline of, you know, when is end of life and all of these experiences that we have when it's like, oh, you know, the family member has their father who is 97 and we still aren't having these conversations. We're going to continue pushing those boundaries, right? We're going to continue disassociating ourselves. So when you're speaking about marketing and our approach, I, I, that resonates with me because I spend so much of my energy saying, hey, we need to normalize end of life and critical care planning. And this is not talking about, hey, I need to have this conversation with my parents. Hey, I actually need to familiarize myself and have my care planning in my 20s, 30s, et cetera. And then be a leader in your family and say, hey, mom, I'd like to share my planning with you. And what comes up for you with what I need to know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. love that. I, 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 yeah. And in my classes, when I teach the end of life doula program, I mean, people learn about the the advanced care planning and the serious illness uh, planning, and they they 
go ahead and then they give them to their parents for Christmas gifts, you know, mm. they see the importance of it, but they don't think right at that time that it's for them. They think about their parents and uh, both Sarah and I have our advanced care plans done and have our serious illness plans done because we, we aren't sure when end of life is. And I, and I appreciate your question is like, when does that start? And we do use that palliative approach to care. And that does include having these conversations early Mm -hmm. and it's so important so when we have 30 year olds or 20 something year olds who are really proactive in their healthcare planning coming to us to do end of life care planning we're just like yes Mm -hmm. you know it's so exciting rather than getting a phone call from a family who's who they just brought their dad to the to the er and now they're trying to you know backtrack and figure out what to do for them because mm-hmm. when you're planning and you're healthy and you're not in a critical emergency or a serious emergency that you have to make those decisions, you're clear, you know, your, your thoughts are clear and the things that you, you come up with are clear. And also the things that bring you comfort when you're healthy and young are going to be the same things that are going to bring you comfort when you're dying. You know, you're going to want the same smells, the same music, and those things can all be brought in. And that's what we do as end of life doulas is trying to capture what this person's life is all about. It's not really anything to do with end of life. It's to Mm -hmm. do with how they lived and and what represents them the best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about an end of life doula that you'd like to clarify for people? Amazing question. I so value you asking this because typically most people hear end of life and like that timeline that we're talking about, they're going to disassociate themselves and say, hey, you know, that's for someone else, that's for someone else who's more ill than me or older than me, etc. So just knowing that working with an end of life doula is for anyone at any time, as well as it's in your best interest. It's in your best interest. You're going to be able to equip yourself with the education and information and resources and conversations that you need to have. So I always reflect on the fact that yes, these conversations are hard and these conversations that I'm starting and putting out there on social platforms, et cetera. Yes, they are confronting and uncomfortable. However, I'm not the bearer of bad news. The elephant is already in the room myself acknowledging the elephant doesn't make it real. It's already real. It's already existing, right? This is all of our collective work. So just going, you know, reframing and focusing back on this is in everyone's best interest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just adding to that, it's maybe the biggest misconception when people think, well, I don't need that. It's because they don't know about all the choices and all the options that they have and what good using Um, a doula would do you know I'm gonna die anyway it's gonna be like this because this is the experience that I've had but there's so many choices and there's so many options and we can make death change that narrative of death being scary and death being hard or people in pain to something that's beautiful I totally agree I mean I was gonna ask do you have any examples that you can share that demonstrate what it looks like when it's done right? Use my dad's example. Um, when I, my dad, my dad passed uh, when I had been doulering for about 11 years. But when I was there as my dad's, uh, I wasn't there as my dad's doula. I was there as my dad's daughter. Um, so I, as a, as somebody who had done that work, I knew 
you, I needed to have a good crew. So I still brought in hospice. I still brought in uh, home care. I still brought in the palette of social worker when uh, to my, to my home because my dad wanted to die at home, which was is like most people. I mean, I think ninety percent of people want to die at home, and it is totally doable if you have the crew in place. And you know, we did. My dad was young; he was sixty-seven. We weren't wanting him to die, but I can't think of a better way than for him to have gone through that journey than the one that he did. He wanted to watch my children jumping on the trampoline. So we pushed his hospital bed to the one to the window and pushed the trampoline to the other side. And that's how he died. He watched my kids jumping. And and for him, that was a gold star death is what I would explain. And that's what we want people to know is that when you choose to die at home, you're not signing up to do it alone. If you check somebody out of the hospital, if they get sick or you get scared, you can have these resources in place that will come back and support you, whether it's the palliative paramedic team or a, a, a palliative doctor coming into your home or home care. People don't know what they don't know. And I feel like they, you know, they get what they get and they don't get upset in some some situations where you just do it because that's the way everybody else has already has always done it but there are so many options and i have been at uh, witness at so many beautiful deaths and i've been as a birth doula been a witness to what we call a beautiful birth but births not beautiful there the woman is screaming there's stuff it's 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 very anesthetic you know you're in a in a hospital room um, but it doesn't need to be like that. We now have seen a huge shift in people, you know, having births at home. So we need to catch up in palliative care. And I totally agree with you, Sammy, that the P word should never exist because it should be in every single level of care. It just should be how care is done. You know, somebody's in the ER, somebody's in acute care, somebody's in long-term care. That's just the approach that should be done a blanket, like a blanket approach is that palliative, par uh, palliative care approach, not just when people are getting at the end of their journey. The four of us are kindred spirits, I tell you. But, you know, I will, I was thinking as, as you were describing what you do, you know, of course, part of me wishes that this was embedded into our funded healthcare system, right? Either the role is funded, uh, like nursing is funded and physicians are funded, or um, nurses and doctors and social workers and OTs and PTs know how to doula someone, know how to do the doulaing. Like, for example, I feel palliative care one day may not have to exist if we actually trained all doctors and nurses to be able to, um, you know, learn the skills related to applying a palliative approach. And really a lot of that is the navigation that you guys do and the advanced planning and the um, discussing options and the benefits and the burdens and person-centered care and informed decisions and getting all your ducks in a row and making sure you're proactive, like really um, 
we shouldn't exist. You guys shouldn't exist. And I shouldn't exist if we actually had a healthcare system that trained people properly. Um, in the meantime, I'm funded as a palliative care doctor, but you guys aren't. No. And that's our biggest barrier right now is that we're not funded and people have to pay out of their own pocket, which really limits um, who, I mean, we all know that palliative care is not made for every, everybody as well. I mean, uh, uh, Nahid Dasani, he was on your show. He talked about his program, like palliative care is only made for certain types of people in most cases, but like us, um, people need to be able to pay out of pocket. So we do have a lot of doulas who will go on the fringe and uh, provide service. I have provided service for the homeless population because it's they're at high risk of death and at high risk of witnessing death or being that next person there. Um, so important to be able to support them. However, our system doesn't support us to get paid to do it, which is not really realistic. So um, we're we're at a point where um, we're doing research to build because that's what policy change needs. They want to see the research behind it. So we're at a place where we're doing the research to support the role so that we can bring that to the policymakers or to the insurance people or mm -hmm. to, you know, the palliative care benefits package people so that they can take that and plug it in so that people can get a um, get a doula if they need to. Now, when I work in Indigenous communities, we do have an Indigenous end-of-life guide program that um, I created a few years ago. And those students are all community members and they all come in. Um, First Nations Health Authority here in BC pays for that. They come in and they learn how to care for their loved ones at their end of their life mm -hmm. so that we can keep them in community. My mm -hmm. biggest soapbox, if I was going to build one, is uh, people who live in rural communities, um, specifically on reserves, they get shipped mm -hmm. out when they're dying. And mm -hmm. then they're dying alone. They're dying on a dirt road. They're dying in air ambulance. They're dying away from their families. And, and for me, that breaks my heart. Um, so that's why. Uh, I really focus on working in rural and Indigenous communities. But these people uh, are just community members. They're not doctors or nurses. They're, they're just using a lot of the times the skills that they already have. They just need the support um, mm -hmm. to, to say, yeah, you're doing a good job. Mm -hmm. and, and just on that, in the education program that I provide with the end of life doula, most of my students are social workers and nurses. I've had doctors in my class and lawyers, but they're mostly professionals looking for more skills because they didn't get it in the programs that they created, that they completed, sorry. Yeah, I know, I'm signing up, trust me. As soon as I have a chance, I'm signing up. So I was just trying to understand more of, um, you know, the national organization, it's been around for six years, I think you said, what are you proud of? Like, do you have membership across all the provinces? What are you doing together as a group? Um, that you want to talk about or you can share with us? To answer what we're most proud of, honestly, it's just, it's, it doesn't take a lot of people, but it's that commitment and perseverance of your vision and mission of just saying like exactly what you two are doing. Hey, like we actually can do better. So let's go figure out how that can be done and who's in our corner. Mm -hmm. And, and that grassroots movement and then now increasing our, 
connection with health authorities and BC Hospice Palliative Care and all these larger organizations and just increasing that at community education awareness, I would say that we're very proud of and being able to say that we have a body of knowledge in the scope of practice and ethics for the profession of end-of-life doulas. That mm -hmm. is substantial. That is substantial. Mm -hmm. From my social work background, my lens was just immediately when I met Jennifer, I said, oh my word, we are serving a vulnerable population. We have a very high responsibility here. So mm -hmm. thus we created all of these different aspects of this profession. So then we could gather more people and in increase that training and education so then we can serve more people. Uh, mm -hmm. So then now to have this community of practice and this professional body of support, we are just continuing to grow and grow and just really being those advocates, exactly what you're doing here with those information pieces. We have such a gap of information for our communities on end of life and death and dying and grief and loss. And it's like mind blowing sometimes because it's information and education, and this is avoidable. People's poor experiences are avoidable. We know we can do better. So let's start bridging those gaps. And end of life doulas is just one one of the steps of that process. So okay, you're telling me that you too are the original end of life doulas in Canada. That's pretty amazing. No, seriously. Yes, I know there were birth doulas before, but I just figured uh, maybe you guys just made it more organized or so were there end of life or death doulas in the States? So, yes. And, and I'll just, I'll just answer that. There was, there were a few across Canada of end of life doulas. They were training, um, more so as funeral home, funeral practitioners. Okay. So we've just opened it up. Uh, the the lens a little bit not focusing on the the you know you're vigiling at the bedside and death oh, we okay. really saw the gaps in in planning way downstream so that when people get upstream that there's no dams blocking blocking the road okay. so we really focus on the planning part we do we do talk about vigiling. We do talk about end of life, like the, the death experience. Mm. Um, but what I found here in Canada, at least, is that uh, a lot of people were focused on almost like the hospice role. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we're not like the hospice role. Mm -hmm. We're so different. We encourage people to go to hospice if that's what they need, if that's what they want. Mm -hmm. But that's not a role that we, we don't step on anybody's toes. Like that's not our role. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there were, there were um, a few end of life doulas down in the States. Now in the last five years, I mean, there's, there was two schools in Canada that were offering mm -hmm. end of life doula. And now there's over 40 and that's just in Canada wow. alone. The whole role originated over in the UK mm -hmm. um, and they call themselves soul midwives. And for us here in Canada, okay. uh, midwives is an owned word by the Birth Midwife Association. Mm -hmm. So we can't call ourselves midwives. Mm -hmm. So we, we um, that's how we are ended up as doulas. And then just to add on that, Jennifer, mm -hmm. what is so clear for me when we first began having coffee was just really acknowledging that, hey, there are people within Canada and in the States that are 
fulfilling these roles. However, there was no structure around it. And for mm -hmm. myself, that was critical to be yeah. a part of the hospice palliative care team and to really standardize this and make a significant difference, not just these individual businesses or clinics, practices, and silos. So for Jennifer and I, we decided to commit to really creating that structure and aspects of regulation so then everyone could be on the same page and that community members could say hey you know if i'm going to work with an end-of-life doula who's a member of the end-of-life doula association of canada i know what to expect i know that they have a scope of practice and ethics and educational requirements so that was something that was huge for us to stay strong with as we worked over the last six years <laughs> how many people are members of your association so we do have a couple of different kinds of memberships. So yeah. I'm going to say that we have over 600 members, but wow. that doesn't mean we have over 600 end-of-life doulas. A lot of our people who are our members are that, social workers and nurses, and they're not going to hang a shingle as a doula. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're, we're around 80 doulas strong, and we have doulas in Newfoundland. We have doulas all across Canada. We have doulas in Whitehorse. So for our listeners, like, what can a person expect if they work with an end-of-life doula? Can you kind of spell out what do you do exactly? Thank you for asking this because exactly, right? There are so many hats that we wear. So I would, I would say that just starting off by acknowledging that we, even though we do have a scope of practice in our education and ethics, et cetera, just like as if a nurse were to have their own practice, they have that autonomy within their practice to be able to serve clients in a different way, have different processes, and whether that's some end-of-life doulas primarily work online, some people serve people in person, et cetera. So I do just want to preface this with saying that there are a lot of, um, yeah, you, you have a lot of different options within um, yeah. Yeah. and then just Overall, though, really end of life doulas, like I said, they are there's a resource base of knowledge with the end of life, death, dying and grief experience. So end of life doulas provide a lot of education, a lot of connection to resources, a lot of family mediation and, you know, support with starting the conversations End of life doulas also support families to like Jennifer said, and like we're talking about is completing those logistical planning aspects of, Hey, um, you know, what do we need to get in order? Who wants to be the one who are calling the decisions when the time comes instead of it being all, um, a lot of family conflict and et cetera. Mm. And really just end of life doulas. If you're able to have everything in order, have the conversation. Everyone's on the same page. Everyone understands that we're going to respond differently to illness and grief and loss and, and this news. So then we need to adapt as family dynamics shift and support each other. Really at the end, like we noted in the beginning of this conversation, I should be able to work myself out of a job. Mm -hmm. At the end, the family should be equipped mm -hmm. and empowered and educated that they are prepared. Mm -hmm. So really similar to a birth doula where they're walking alongside the family through months and months and months mm -hmm. and you've got all this pre-planning and working conversations mm -hmm. and so then when the time comes that they are absolutely equipped so mm -hmm. and and like we said you don't know what you don't know so it's really just filling those gaps for people. And there's so much fear surrounding death and end of life that it's just really those gentle conversations. And being that, I, I always note that 
and we're leaving a lot of primary caregiver burnout because it's not like, oh, you know, as the primary caregiver, oh, we, I've got to initiate this family meeting again, or oh, I got to bring this up again. It's no, we have a meeting with Sarah. And when we meet with Sarah, we all know what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And having that experience to be able to facilitate the entire process and just say, hey, this is what you can expect. And so it's yours to take what you need and take what you're ready for. Makes a lot. It's it makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> why wouldn't anyone? Why would people not want a doula? Um, really, when you think about it. Uh, yeah. If I could just add to that a little bit um, about like the the kind of the framework and the process um, that we kind of go through. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples. I've had clients that I've had for three weeks and I've had clients that had four months to live and they were my client for two and a half years because um, my, my client, Dorothy, who, who gave me permission to share, she says she was a past her expiry date. Um, <laughs> and the amount of visits and the type of visits all seem the same, no matter how long the relationship with the doula was. So we always meet and make sure we're a good fit for each other because if we're not a good fit for each other um it's best for us to be humble and say you know what i've got a great doula for you that's really going to work for you because they only get one chance at this end of life experience i was going to say we've got 79 other doulas in canada that you can try (laughs) yeah yeah and i do i i really do encourage them to to try uh, and interview a few and now with online uh, visits that has come up from COVID, that's something that is really doable. Um, so we do that. We we make sure that we're the right fit. And then usually in the second uh, meeting, we establish what their priorities are and what their goals are for the time that they have. So whether it's looking at some of the regrets or the wishes that they have, um, it could be getting their affairs in order, completing advanced care plans. It could be um, creating legacies for their loved ones that they're leaving behind. Maybe they have some fears around leaving loved ones behind. It could be that we're helping alleviate some of those fears by working through some legacy projects. I had a, a client who was utterly afraid to die because she thought her husband could not cook for himself or feed himself if she died. Mm -hmm. And that was very debilitating for her. It probably caused her a lot of um, unnecessary um, pain and not physical pain, but that emotional pain. Mm -hmm. And what we were able to do was we even went through her Chinese takeout menus and circled what he should order (laughs) if if he got hungry. Um, So that was one thing that we were able to do, but also we left him a cookbook that she wrote so that she could leave this world and know that he was taken care of. It could be rehoming pets. It could be uh, that you're you're dying and you have young children and you're gonna miss uh, events in their life, writing cards, making videos. So it could be any of those things. Um, And then usually that third, that might take a a visit or two. And then the third or fourth visit, you're producing those deliverables. So now you've got the plan. You've got that care plan in, in, in your hand. Okay. And so what comes next? And then after that, there's sometimes a period of waiting. Mm -hmm. It's just like in the birth doula world where 
you get together, you meet the birth doula, you come up with the plan, and then you wait until the person's in labor. Well, it's the same for us as end of life doulas is that then we wait. And we might do check ins and you know, little things in between. But we wait until they say something has changed, or something Mm -hmm. is happening. And then um, that's where our, our role really switches a little bit from making sure that the person who's dying is taking well we, we it's a bit of a both it's where we split it's where now we're taking care of the family as well making sure that they're getting respite making sure that they're not having caregiver uh, burnout we don't want anyone any family member to feel okay or uh, I'm trying to find that word you know like you know what, I'd be better off when they're gone. Or, you know, this is taking up a lot of my time or feel like eh, unaffected if somebody is dying. We don't want that. That That's a sign of caregiver burnout. So what would you do if you noticed caregiver burnout? So we might come in and support the family a little bit more than the person who's dying. If the person who's dying is not able to, to communicate or... Um, give us direction that's when the person whoever is their their substitute decision maker is that's when that person makes those decisions so we have to take extra care of that person because it's a lot of responsibility Mm -hmm. for them and it's a lot of stress and and families have different dynamics and then after the person dies um we're we're kind of our hands off um because our role as the doula um, for for the person has changed. uh, And that's when um, the funeral and grief support would come in. So um, making sure that they contacted the funeral home and and we may provide some some grief support. I provided grief support for a lady. um, She was 29 when her husband died. Um, They had two small kids and when when he died she needed somebody to talk to her about her grief because nobody wanted to talk to her so we would walk out her grief two days a week and we did that for a year mm-hmm. and it was the only time she said that anybody would bring it up with her that, that her that you know or explore the possibilities of life without her husband nobody knew what to say people avoided her in the grocery store so we don't want to get to those points so that's kind of our framework, like of practice of, of how we do things. And the biggest thing to really is that no matter if the client is our client for like two and a half years, or if they're for three weeks, it seems to follow the same kind of trajectory. That's really interesting. Um, like really interesting that there are these almost like key functions that you have Um, That can be tailored to each situation, of course. It's not cookie cutter, but yeah, it's interesting that you can get what you need done in a certain package of um, sessions. Uh, It's not, you know, tightly defined, but that it doesn't have to be something that someone has to purchase a million, um, you know, unlimited supply membership for five years, that what you have to offer it can be, like I said, delivered as like this really nice package. Um, it's, it's, it's doable. And it's, it's, I don't want to say it's a bite size, it, you know, because when you first think about it, you, 
a person might be overwhelmed with um, the uh, amount of support that they might need from a doula, and then therefore worry also about finances, et cetera, et cetera. But they, they don't need to for the reasons you've already mentioned that sometimes doulas have a sliding scale. Um, and also that there is a very well-defined therapeutic intervention, um, a very thoughtful intervention that you offer. Mm-hmm. Um, I also would love to do a study on and I don't, Cien could t- tell us how we could do this, but um, if the symptoms of patients uh, who have a doula versus those that don't have a doula are any different, because I would guarantee that if you have a doula involved, we know that people's fears and anxieties and worries uh, amplify their symptoms hugely. And to have someone like you guys involved early on addressing things that are causing them a lot of their suffering, um, I'm positive decreases their symptom burden. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of these main themes that we're touching on and, and what you also acknowledge within your episode is, is that fear, right? A lack of education and awareness. We have a lot of fear surrounding death and dying and with end of life doulas, we're creating those spaces to have the conversation and what we're just starving for these safe spaces. And I'm so thankful for your podcast because you are opening up this inclusive space for people. And we are just, it really does come back to how do you define quality of life? And I really value Jennifer just really highlighting that. And the beginning of my sessions often with clients is you know, what do you, let's, let's acknowledge your fears. That's starting point. And then how do you define quality of life and how are we going to uphold that throughout the journey? And, and we are just starving for these opportunities. So, and the life doulas, like you also note in your episodes, it's, it's a lot of that psychosocial, emotional, spiritual care and space that we don't necessarily need to call on our palliative social workers and nurses and physicians for, because everyone's bandwidth is almost going to break, right? So how can we, how can we implement greater care professionals to serve our, our, our clients and our patients? I'm going to join your association. Am I allowed? Absolutely. We have a lot of uh, people who are like you, who Mm -hmm. are interested in palliative care and they want to come to our sessions. We have 12 monthly sessions a year and the knowledge that comes out of some of our sessions is mind-blowing. We have some fantastic speakers. Uh, Last month, we had Niles from Music Cure. I don't know if you know Niles. He's over in the UK, and he's done years, like I'm thinking like 30 years of research on how music helps people in in the hospital and in those situations. It was fantastic. We've had some fantastic uh, speakers. We've had you on as a speaker. Yeah. Yes. So how would people join if they wanted to join the association? Um, it's really easy. They can go to the end of life doula association.org and sign up as a supporting member. And with that, uh, they get to join in on this conversation and create the, the big thing. And I don't know if it was like this for you, Sammy, um, is that it was a really lonely world about six years ago and before. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Um, I had 
been doing this work kind of like what Sarah was saying in my own silo mm -hmm. and was very lonely and just being with people who get it and don't say oh that must be so sad for you oh that must be so hard for you and people see that other uh, narrative of palliative care mm -hmm. um, that community of practice is just phenomenal so yes you are welcome to come aboard thank you i'm so impressed with you too and impressed with the doula movement um like i've said before I was so ignorant, so naive about what a doula um, did. So much of what you guys do philosophically, maybe not in operations, but is exactly what I do um, at the bedside, helping to prepare people and um, share knowledge, invite them to know more as much as they want or not want. I try to individualize the care that I, I do so much of that more than I do fancy symptom control. Um, we, we do a lot of the same. I think you guys are much more artsy about what you do than what I do. Uh, I can only imagine how much better I'm going to be after the doula course. <laughs> because I think the combination would be amazing. I'm just being cheeky. But really, I'm so I, I remember when we were invited to speak at your association, I and that I had been reading a little bit more about end-of-life doulas, I was shocked, really, and embarrassed that I didn't realize how much you guys do. Um, and I wish so badly we could incorporate you into the care of all people facing progressive life-limiting illnesses, because it really is the missing gap. You are filling a humongous missing piece, humongous. I mean, I agree. It's amazing what you've both been able to achieve and galvanizing a critical mass of people and teaching courses in provinces all over Canada. Um, I also love that end-of-life doulas are a perfect example of our waiting room revolution keys, right? Customizing your order is one of them and being able to make the experience make feel like who they are. And just like birth doulas, End-of-life doulas really have to have their own personality and style too and have to vibe with the family. And they're bringing their own unique skills to their roles for the clients they serve. I think this might be one of those misconceptions that people think that we're coming in and we're drumming and we're smudging and we're doing singing bowls and this and that. It's really tailored to whatever you want and your mm -hmm. vibe is going to attract your tribe. So we do have music therapists mm -hmm. that are end of life doulas. We do have Reiki masters that are end of life doulas. Mm -hmm. We have massage therapists that are end of life doulas. So if that's what's kind of the path, your, you know, your vibe, you're going to go and click on that doula instead of, you know, you want a social worker, you're going to click on Sarah. Mm -hmm. So it, it really does get tailored. We have um, some, we have deaf I could say deaf death doulas, but we're not death doulas anymore. We have deaf end of life doulas or oh, deaf. we have deaf. Like uh, and, hearing. And, yeah. Awesome. And we have doulas who who are uh, ASL translators and interpreters. So we we really try to um, think of all the different skills that we have and yeah, you know, put those together and bring those forward. Yeah, I mean, we have a huge LGBTQ2 plus um, 
support system. We have people who say, you know what, this is the niche I'm going to work in. Mm -hmm. We have people who are Jewish and they say, I'm just going to work in the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. For me, I, I do a lot of my work, like I said, in, in indigenous communities, mm -hmm. but we have people who just want to do stillbirths mm -hmm. or child and infant death. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it really depends on what, what their skills were prior to coming in it's and death is not just about aging and uh, for old people and that's one thing that i think that uh is one of those misconceptions for mm -hmm. sure all of my clients in the last three years have been under 60. oh really i yeah. guess that's the vibe the vibe i put out yeah um so yeah. i track my, even though my background is gerontology i i tracked those 50 year olds uh, that are going through stuff mm -hmm. It's so fascinating to talk with you both. It brings me to our final question. What advice do you have for patients and families to have a better experience? Or what have you learned and heard from your clients of what they'd wish they'd known earlier? I would, the first thing that, that comes to mind would just say, if you can take the chance to reflect on your greatest fear, because really that's gonna guide a lot of our work and where we're gonna prioritize our time and resources, energy. So yeah. That's the first thing that comes to mind. And, and for me, it's educate yourself on the options. Mm -hmm. um, don't just get what you get and don't get upset. Don't just do things that everybody else has done. You know, push that envelope. If, if you want to go home and die, then make it happen. Um, so mm -hmm. that's my advice. It's, it's just to educate yourself on, on all of the options. Amazing. Love you guys. Love you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, see you and Sammy. So thank you so much for everything you're doing. It is our so, so much gratitude. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.